Hi, you're listening to Secrets for an Inspirational Life with me, your host, Mimi Novik. I'm so happy and thrilled to have you here with me. I have created this series for all of us so we can change our world together and live a more holistic and balanced life. Together, we will share lots of inspiring stories from all walks of life, speak with leading experts, enjoy healthy living ideas, explore music and subjects that inspire each other to always have hope. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate all of you. Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of Secrets for an Inspirational Life. Thank you so much for joining me today and I hope that you are all well and that your world is a calm and a peaceful one at the moment, wherever you are and whatever you're doing. Now, one of the most Our most asked questions, I suppose, in most people's minds is the question of what makes love last? You know, people have written songs and books and all sorts of things. And it's century old um, questions, centuries upon centuries. And therefore, today's guest is someone that I'm really excited to talk to because That's one of the things that he actually tries to answer and to help people with. So I have the pleasure of the company of internationally renowned relationship expert Brad Robinson. He has helped over one and a half million people worldwide to heal broken trust through his expertise And he does that together with his wife, Morgan. So they specialise in helping people make their relationships stable and healthy. He is also a TEDx speaker and talks about lasting love and lasting relationships. He has travelled all over North America, speaking and training with the best minds and the best experts in marriage and family therapy, but I'm sure he's going to tell you more about this absolutely fascinating subject. Um, so I'm really pleased to welcome Brad. Hi, Brad. Hi, Mimi. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. Thank you very much. And how are you today? I'm doing great. Uh, today's actually my birthday. And so, <laughs> is it really? Uh, yeah. Oh, happy birthday. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, so what does that make honestly, you? There's What's... nothing I would rather do on my birthday than be here right now, to be honest oh. with you. And so... That's so sweet. Well, happy birthday. And I hope all your yeah. dreams and wishes and everything beautiful comes true for you. Yeah, well, I thank you. I appreciate that. So what star sign are you? Where are we now? Are we in May? Are you a Taurus? Yes. You're a I Taurus. Think, yeah, I think I'm considered a Taurus. Taurus are known to be jerks from... I don't really follow astrology but from what i've picked up just some conversations no 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 they are then universe mm, no (laughs) i i know many and um i get i get on with all taurians and they're an earth sign i believe i think okay 
Um, but yes, it's sir. so lovely to have you. Thank you so much. And right, you. you're all the way over there in Oklahoma in the States. Yes. Yep. Wow. Yep. My goodness. Yeah. So yeah. tell us a little bit about what you do, Brad, because I'm fascinated. I, I know we were speaking earlier, but this is a, a fascinating yep. subject for everybody. Yeah, I the, the the basic core of what I do is I help people reconnect and fall back in love with each other. And it's usually after the most dire of circumstances have happened in the relationship where one of them has strayed and cheated on their spouse or cheated on their partner. And it's really there's a lot you can learn about relationships by uh understanding why people cheat and what happens to a couple after trust has been broken in their relationship and it's profoundly impacted me personally uh in good ways and bad ways because it's it's horrendous to see people in that kind of suffering but it's also given me appreciation for uh what i have and uh just how much work relationships require and it's you know, it's made me, it's, you know, when, you, when you're when you on the front lines and you see things like this, it give, it, you have a different perspective on how relationships work, how they operate than the average person and even average therapist. So how long have you been doing this and what inspired you to begin this career path and this journey? Yeah, that's a good question. I have been a therapist for about 14 years mm-hmm. and really honed down just said, you know what, I like couples, I'm going to work with couples about the last eight and a half years. And what really got me into this is really just my own personal struggles with relationships, my parents' divorce, and the confusion that brings, the confusion about what makes a relationship work, and really my own pain and failure. And I became a do-it-yourself project where I got to figure this out. And as I figured stuff out as I learned things uh, I began to uh, people began to ask me questions and that eventually led me into you know what I think I would like to be a therapist I think I'd like to be a marriage counselor or a couples therapist Mm -hmm. and help people with it and so went you know the formal route with school and and that kind of thing and of course you kind of wonder if you're making a mistake Uh, but but yeah just honestly just a lot of pain and a lot of failure um I think sometimes that's how we find our purpose is we find it through where, where are your pain points? Where are you failing? And, uh, and usually we're failing because we're not very competent or very good at it. But ironically, that's usually probably where our purpose lies. Brad, that is so true. You know, you have to go through so much pain. I believe this for, for sure. Before you can actually, it's like going through the fire. And when even when glass is made or anything, it has to go in the oven to be complete. And you said something wonderful to me when we were speaking earlier. What was that line that you said to me about pain? Uh, yeah, I was asking. Yeah, uh, usually, you know, obviously we wanted to understand what is our purpose in life. And I have been, and this is not, you know, I'm... Uh, this is something I've really in the last few years began to uh, believe. Uh, but I really believe that good comes out of suffering. I think 
I think the point of suffering is for eventually greater good to come out of it as a culture, as a society. Like right now, we're in the middle of the pandemic. I think we're going to be far better off as a culture and society when this is over than we were before the situation came up. And, I, you know, I really have that belief, and that's a belief from watching people individually suffer, but just from studying history and how war has usually brought out greater good, better things have happened. And, and so, you know, we have this idea of when we're suffering that, uh, you know, it's all bad. It's all misery. Mm-hmm. And, but I really believe that, and this is something I've noticed with clients, one of the things I'll ask people is what their earliest painful memory is. And that's a very difficult question to ask somebody because the answers are, you never know what you're going to hear as an answer. Mm. And, you know, I've had people, and it's not, honestly, it's not fun to ask people that question uh, because it's, because you sometimes have had people, you know, we have people break down and weep. Uh, sometimes you have people, uh, you get different reactions. And, but the answer to that question, what's your earliest painful memory, can often reveal deep themes about a person's life, about uh, even what their purpose is. And it's really interesting because sometimes, you know, in my case, it's really spelled out clearly. Like my earliest painful memory was when my parents divorced at four, when I was four. And that led me on a path of, okay, how does this actually work? How do, why do people stay together? Why do people not stay together? How can I ensure that I'm going to be happy? And, you know, there's a lot of pain and failure and suffering in that process as a young man trying to figure out dating and relationships and, and very difficult to let people get close to me. And so I had to do my own healing. But in that, you know, that's what's, that suffering along the way is what led me into this. Uh, you know, in my case, it might be pretty clear cut, but in other people's cases, it's really interesting to see the answers you get. And it's usually you'll see uh, what people say if they do a little digging and analyzing of that, you can really see themes and patterns emerge about what people are striving for in life, about what people need, about what uh, makes, what motivates people. And also what people feel like, you know, they're, how they want to help other people. And that's, I think that's like a million dollar question. If you want to understand somebody, mm. I think that's a great question to ask them that you, you know, obviously, depending on your relationship with them, you probably can't just ask anybody that without really knowing them on a deep personal level. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe not, you know, anybody other than like a romantic partner may not answer that for you. But it's a it's a great question because it's a great question to ask yourself. Um, at four, my parents divorced. At three, a year before, I had an accident that where I almost lost two toes on one of my feet. And that didn't scar me emotionally, though. I had, you know, my parents were supportive. I remember, I remember that incident clearly. Uh, obviously, it was very physically traumatic, but it wasn't emotionally traumatic because I had support. But then the year later, you know, their divorce is what the defining of probably event of my life. And, uh, but when you examine those questions and you ask yourself that, what's my earliest painful memory? And you kind of, deep dive into that it can really show you i think your life's purpose because 
and I, I know I'm kind of rambling, but it can show your life's purpose. And what it can do as well is it, um, it, the, usually those experiences kind of, because they happen when we're so young, they can filter how we see everything else. And, uh, you can see the world is jaded. You can see the world is full of good people. You can see the world as, you know, uh, dangerous and I'm not enough to handle it. You can come away with different conclusions and that viewpoint we have from those early sufferings really shapes ultimately who we become and I think even our purpose. It's a very interesting way to look at it and, you know, I think there's a lot of truth in that, Brad. And do you remember when you were four? Because, you know, this is the thing. So many people say to me, in my work as well. But I don't remember. I've blocked it. I've blocked it oh, out. Yeah. Yeah, and then you can go through life. And when you ask that very question that you ask, you know, where does the, where does the pain come from? What's your most early painful <clears throat> memory? They say, I don't know. I don't know. So what do you do then? Because maybe this is the Pandora's box, the opening, yeah. the beginning of the Pandora's box where... You open that and then everything comes out. So what happens with people that don't remember? Yeah, that's a good question. I think in some ways, you know, there are people, I wasn't one of them, but there are people that actually have a good childhood. And, And so maybe their early painful memory, earliest painful memory didn't happen until they were like 15. Mm. And if that's the case, that's great. There are people, though, who have traumatic childhoods who um, who will block things out. Mm. And then you have other types of people who maybe had so much emotional neglect that they do forget. They really do don't they really do forget and don't remember large chunks of their childhood. And it's not that maybe it wasn't like a traumatic childhood. But it was just they had emotionally cold parents. And usually people like that do have struggles remembering parts of their childhood. And it's because what really what helps us to remember things, really what helps aids memory is a thing is emotion. And if we can't feel our emotions, we have difficult remembering things, difficulty mm. remembering things. Because very true, very true. That, that tie that. And um, they do have those, They you know, they do have, you know, obviously painful memories. Um, I think it's, I think it's fine to go with what you do remember. Um, I think it's fine to go with what you do remember if it's at 15, if it's at 10. Um, I think it's fine to go with that because the same themes will emerge. Mm. Because if there's something earlier than that, it will, uh, because these early painful memories do filter how we see things. And so you'll see, kind of similar things emerge. And so if it's at 10 uh, instead of four, you know, even though there may be stuff earlier, mm-hmm. the, the, I think it's still fine to go with what you do remember because the same uh, theme will be there. And um, because those, even if there is something earlier that's forgotten, it does filter how we see and it does filter what we pay attention to. And, and so that will, uh, because it filters what we pay attention to, it will, um, it will filter what we've paid attention to to when we at, when we were fifteen or you know ten or something like that. So you, in effect, are able 
do you think, to meet people at the point of where they remember their pain? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of, there's usually a lot of trauma. Like in, like in especially with the population I work with, just with um, kind of mental health mm. and uh, you know, maybe in the general public, uh, somebody who's not in a therapist's office, obviously you're going to come up with really emotional, painful memories. Um, but when that does emerge, uh, you know, in the general public, it's probably not going to be as intense or as emotional as a therapist office. Mm. Uh, but, but the, but the people who need help, um, they're going to have some, you know, oftentimes really painful memories that are hard to hear as a human being just to witness someone else's suffering. I had a, a woman one time, um, who, this is probably the worst thing I've ever heard. She said that when she was four, she walked in on her dad who was dead. Oh, and, uh, and of course, as she was recounting the story, uh, you know, she was shivering, shaking. And, and that was her body releasing the stress. As she revisited that memory, just her body was uh, kind of letting go of some of that trauma just by kind of even just physically shaking. And there was a real need for, uh, I forgot what her need was, but these, but those experiences can reveal fears, uh, show us what we need in life and what we, uh, are striving for and what we, what we ultimately want out of our relationships. You know, we were talking about earlier that the world, in most cases, sadly, we can't say the whole world, but uh, has become a bit cynical about love. And although everybody, every living being desires this love, whether, you know, as we were saying earlier, whether it's a tree, a plant, a person, whatever that is living that has this heartbeat of life, wants to be loved. And to love, it's a, a, an innate thing within all of us on a deeper level. But I also hear in my work and talking to friends and family and people that I meet along the way, they have stopped believing in love, Brad. And why do you think that is? That's a good question. I think that's a great question. We have seen relationships not work. I think it, it takes, it's a, it's a lot of work to make a relationship actually work. It's, it takes a lot of effort. It mm -hmm. takes a lot of um, maintenance to make a relationship work. Mm -hmm. And our culture has changed. You know, we as humans have changed. Like, you know, 10,000 years ago, we lived in tribes. And we lived, we were like in the Bronze Age, Stone Age. We, you know, we, and that just through the process of evolution, you know, we, our biology is still stuck there. And because we're intelligent, you know, we're in creative, we've made tools and we have improved our living situation, but our biology is still 10,000 years ago. It's still, you know, 50,000 years ago where we're living in these close knit tribes and our biology still has the same needs for connection and love and security that we had then, but we pay very, very, very little attention to it. And, and so what technology has given us is now more access to everybody 
people can reach we can reach anybody that's on our contact list or Facebook friend or you know so the other social media channels at any time but it's also cheap into communication it's also where you know now we have little short you know text messages that have almost no emotion in them and there's so much misunderstanding and you know we still have a need for being heard and listened to and supported and those biological needs are still there and it's not just science it's not just rooted in our psychology it's rooted in our biology because that's what you know ultimately what love and connection is about is about survival and protection your tribe your, your family that is what helped you thrive as an infant and grow but also being a member of a tribe meant survival and being excommunicated from your tribe meant sudden death very hard to survive out in the wild on your own and and so those that bond uh it's a biological drive to develop bonds with others but our technology and not just the sudden recent technology with computers and things like that as we've progressed you know we've we've gotten away from communities and we focused more on kind of the nuclear family so to speak and nothing wrong with the nuclear family nuclear families are under attack but we've changed to where we're putting all of our pressure on one person to satisfy our needs and i'm not talking about we need to have more than one romantic partner i'm not that's not what i'm talking about at all but we've put a lot of pressure on one person to make us happy we've put a lot of pressure on one person to uh, meet a lot of these romantic needs and it's very difficult for one person to do all that over a 50-year lifetime when they also are experiencing the same storms of life that we're experiencing. They're also, um, you mentioned my TED talk, my TEDx talk. Yeah. I talk about it there, you know, what makes love last. And these couples that have a love that lasts, they, they really experience a lot of problems. They go through the same ups and downs that we all do. They have, they have, uh, if they're, you know, they, they become parents and that's really, that changes the relationship. They, uh, have job losses. Uh, maybe they have job promotions, which are a good thing, but are ultimately stressful. Um, they have parents that age. They have financial issues. You know, they all we all go through the same stuff. We all go through the coronavirus and, and isolation. But you know, we're looking to that person to be our lighthouse. But sometimes it's really hard for somebody to be a caregiver when they're also maxed out and stressed out too. And and so. We sometimes we, you know, can kind of look to somebody to only be a giver and, you know, from the only give to us, but never. But we don't look at them as being human and having needs and sometimes having needing help. And I think our expectations uh, can hurt us. We can have a uh, we can look at somebody as almost inhuman and, and maybe more godlike uh, where that's flawless and that they should always be here and uh, we don't ever look at them as having wrinkles or struggles and so we, we put all this pressure on somebody to meet these needs uh, that you know they can meet but they can't meet them 24-7 But how and, is that different Brad to say 50 years ago when people would stay together for 30, 40, 50 question. years. How, how is today, modern life, 
different to... That's a great question. What's changed? Yeah, Because I, it worked before. I, well, I, yeah, it, I think people stayed married. I don't think they necessarily had healthier relationships. Mm, possibly, I think, yeah. I think what, something that happened in America is we started to have what's called no-fault divorce. And before you had to prove that somebody was unfaithful or abusive. And in America, the laws changed where it said, okay, if you're for any reason, you can get a divorce now. And, and, and these people, uh, so you had this divorce boom that occurred in the United States in the early 80s. And that's when my parents divorced. And it, um, I think the people, though, who did stay married, like if you look at our grandparents who stayed married and didn't go through that no-fault divorce wave, they, I think they grew in love, almost like an arranged marriage. You grow in love. You mm. go through trials. And they have a mindset of commitment. They have a mindset of uh, those guys were the greatest, you know, greatest generation, the uh, Great Depression, uh, World War II generation. And I think they had a different mindset than we do today, where today we, uh, we look at it as not, uh, I, think, I think they just looked at it, I think they valued commitment more than we do. And... As a whole, as a whole, and maybe yeah. maybe they valued uh, people as a whole more. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think I think you're absolutely right. They because uh, part of because honestly, there's nothing today in our culture, uh, even in religion anymore, that tells people, "Look, you gotta, you need to really be committed and value this." You don't really hear anything in our culture anymore. Tell people, look. It's worth staying committed. It's worth working on this. Uh, there's even in some some senses, some circles, there's even shame for staying married for the kids, sake of the kids, and uh, and so you know there's more of an emphasis on personal uh, freedom or personal do what you want, do what feels good, kind of an attitude, uh, <laughs> regardless of what happens to anybody else. Type yeah, of thing. yeah, and you know, and mm. honestly, we we all suffer as a result of that mm. because when one person divorces, there's and I'm gonna there's a study, an interesting study. If if one person divorces, it actually triggers like three other divorces because you're seeing people that uh, that um, that uh, it you know, gosh, if they can't make it, I don't think we can make it, and so. It, tr it actually creates a trickle effect where if you see somebody divorced, yes. it actually triggers other divorces. I've seen that, actually. I've seen that. I had a friend of mine who got divorced. And as a result, two of her other friends got divorced. And I knew them as well. And I said, well, why are you getting divorced? And they said, well, if she's getting divorced, then why not? Then what are we waiting <laughs> for? So it, it, not the best um, advertisement, I have to say. But... Um, Do you think, Brad, it's a little bit also that we as society, as mankind, don't really have the value for ourselves and maybe we've lost patience to make something beautiful and to make something 
work because it is a throwaway society. It is yeah. like, let's buy this for three days. And after three days, let's get rid of it and let's just buy something else. And yeah. we don't really need it. And well, actually, as you said, let's just be happy. And happiness is not really um, a place. Um, so it's difficult because if we don't value ourselves, we can't value anybody else. And if we're not patient with ourselves and if we think that everything that's new, because this is how the media and how, you know, everything that operates around us now, if, you know, if if it seems to be a little bit too much like hard work, you don't need to do that. You've got this freedom. You can go and you can do what you want. But what has happened is everyone's doing what they want, but they're terribly unhappy. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you on that because, you know, there's there. I agree with you 100 percent on that. Like we now have the society where do what you want, Mm. chase the happiness. But we have a life where people are pursuing fun or happiness, but they're not pursuing meaning. And exactly, exactly that. Yeah, and meaning is ultimately what gives us a sense of happiness. Like, right now, I have a four-year-old and a one-year-old at home. I am the most sleep-deprived. I have I gained 20 pounds in the last pregnancy. You know, like, <laughs> but my life is the most full and happiest. Mm. You know, like, I have very little time to myself personally. I have, I'm not, you know, like, if anybody were to watch my life from the outside looking in, they would say, why would I want kids? Look what Brad and Morgan are going through right now. <laughs> you know, I got, last time I saw him, he was 20 pounds lighter. He, you know, like he, you know, I've asked him what TV shows he's been able to watch. And he's like, well, I've been watching any shows. I've been playing with kids and doing this. Like, why would I want that? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, that's what, that's how I looked at stuff like this, you know, before having kids. It's like, let me put this off. Uh, but when you have it, it gives your life so much meaning and purpose. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. You know, and so we've been pursuing, you know, in the Western world, fun and pleasure, which is fine, but it's not a source of happiness. And what gives us happiness is a pursuing a life of meaning. And part of what gives us meaning in relationships isn't always having somebody there for us, which is definitely part of it and needed. We need somebody to be our lighthouse who we can go to in storms and who will be there with, you know, shining their light for us. But mm. what gives us ultimate meaning is being able to be someone else's lighthouse, being able to be there for someone else and love someone else and be there to listen and to give them warm blankets and dry clothes when they're coming in from the storm. That that being able to be a caregiver is also what gives life meaning. It's not just you know, it's children who are all, all the it's children who are the takers. Like my four year old, my one year old. It's you know, I can't ask anything from them and I can't expect anything from them and I shouldn't. But what gives me purpose and meaning is being their caregiver. And the same is true in relationships and romantic relationships. And, you know, we've, we're a bunch of children in the Western world where we think I got to I got to go from partner to partner or person to person. And I'm only in this as long as you're here for me. That's a child mentality in a relationship. And it's selfish. Looking at it it's is, selfish. It's very selfish. Mm. Yeah. And you know what? Here's the kicker. Like I have had clients across the political spectrum from and I don't bring politics into what I do Mm. uh, but I've had clients across the political spectrum from extremely conservative 
where it makes you uncomfortable, we, you know, you're like, okay, that's pretty conservative, you know, like pretty, you know, uncomfortable with what they're saying. Mm -hmm. And then I've had clients who are like extreme liberal and they're all saying the same crap. They're like, people have to be committed. It's a human issue. It's not a political issue. Mm. And people are tired of the politics screwing up their marriage where it's like, you know, people across the board are like, look, you got to be committed. You have to make it work because we're seeing the destruction now. We've, And you know what's also interesting to me is I'm part of the generation that grew up with the divorce boom where divorce was around 50 percent. It's really no longer there. Uh, it's hard to get an accurate number of people say different things, but it's probably somewhere in the 30 percent. Mm. Like divorce rates probably around 30 percent, maybe 36 percent. But what's interesting is back in the 80s and late 70s when this divorce boom was occurring, the advice was children are going to be okay. Children are resilient. You know, if you pursue your happiness, yeah, it'll be hard on them for a year, but they're going to bounce back. What's happened, and there's books written on this, is that these adults are now growing up. They're now in their late 30s and 40s, and they're saying, no. My parents divorcing has still impacted me today. They divorced when I was 10 or 4 or 15, and it still impacted me. Like, we people don't get over this. And so that myth of you can pursue your happiness, everybody else will be damned, and they're going to get over it, and they're going to grow up and be resilient and okay, mm. is a lie. And people are understanding that. And, you know, there's still – I've done a blog search. Is it okay to stay married for the sake of the kids? And people still have these ideas, but – that it's okay to do that. But there's clear research and interviews from people who grew up in this situation who say, no, it's not okay. Like, we're better off if uh, people stay married for the sake of the kids. And one of the things that's really surprising that came out of this is, you know, one of the things that people said, okay, if you divorce, you got to have a divorce that looks like this. Mom and dad are still going to be a team. We're not married, but we're going to be there for the kids and have a quote unquote good divorce. Mm. And and what ha- what's this is really shocking, and I've shared this with clients and other people, and they're just surprised by it. Is what's shocking is that staying in a quote unquote bad marriage is better than having a good divorce for the children. And and what I mean by bad marriage, I'm not talking about abuse, I'm not talking about violence. Uh, but if you have a an unfulfilling marriage that feels bad, that you know you really don't want to be in children are actually better off with their parents having a bad marriage where their roommates maybe they occasionally fight and argue they're better off in that than they are when their parents have a good divorce like it really still screws up kids in pretty deep ways uh and that's a pretty crazy finding because uh a lot of what you know my peers are guilty of is kind of condoning like you know, we're empathetic as a profession, but empathy has limits and empathy sometimes lets people do what they should do, don't what they shouldn't do. And we can we can understand where people are coming from, but we can condone things that are really uh, extremely hurtful. And, and so anyway, the study basically said as long as uh, the, there are there is one occasion where children are better off with their parents divorcing, and that is when their parents are uh, uh, having constant serious fights. That's when uh, – and those children will say, you know what? I wish my parents did divorce, and that's the time that 
you know, maybe divorce should be looked at or some real in-depth marriage counseling should be looked at. But other than that, what the studies are saying is that children are really better off with mom and dad, quote, you know, staying in a quote unquote bad marriage versus having a good divorce. And that's really surprising because that as that common wisdom 30 years ago uh, that professionals were advocating is dead wrong. And it really gets back to that heart of we need commitment. And that's what people 50 years ago and, you know, 80 years ago had is they were committed. They understood that. To everything. They were committed to everything, whether that be um, relationships or children or careers, not so much possibly, but there is a commitment and there is a responsibility. I, I know many people that will say to me that are single friends and will say to me, well, these people are not bringing anything into my life. And I said, well, how do you mean? They said, well, they're not bringing in financially anything. And, um, well, you know, they're not doing enough for me. So my question is always to them, well, what are you doing for them? Well, that's not the point. Well, that is actually the whole point is what are you doing for each other? And I don't know, because I know that it is this need to be loved and it is who we are. And I think, and I believe 1000% that when you're in love, everything is more beautiful. And I am the ever romantic for sure. But, you know, when you have that deep sense, as you said, of having a lighthouse in your life, having that um, commitment from somebody, life is a lot easier. But I know you talk a lot about this, I saw, that is that people do actually sabotage themselves. Um, Why do they do that? That's a good question. People sabotage themselves ultimately because they feel like they're unlovable and they feel like they're they're afraid of their partner finding that out. That's why they sabotage themselves. I'm unlovable and I'm afraid of you finding that out. And so we do things that uh, weaken the relationship or we, we break up first or we leave first because I'm afraid you're going to find out and you won't like me at that point. So this is a value thing again. It's because we don't value mm-hmm. ourselves that then yep. we feel that we're not good enough. So before yep. someone finds out this lie um, that we're just a fake, when well, we're not a fake, but it's just that we've not resolved these issues through our own life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you're right, Mimi, because our, our, you know, our most important relationship ultimately is the relationship we have with ourselves and the more we view ourselves as worthy of love and the more we view ourselves as worthy of getting our needs met the better quality of our the better quality our relationships will be and if our relationship with ourselves is pretty messed up or not healthy it's going to be really impossible to have a healthy relationship and we're going to end up probably making other people miserable and 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 it's going to be really hard to be a good parent too because we're we're going to be constantly Mm. we're going to constantly be in need and we're not going to really be able to give and we're going to do things that sabotage love And and you know one of the things i mentioned is we push people away but you know we maybe leave first or break up first but we can also be really nagging and critical and blaming or we can just shut down 
and so there's other ways that we sabotage ourselves we can uh we can have like you know this is like an annoying tone of voice we can have uh you know always be thinking our partner's cheating on us we can do you know things that end up pushing somebody away uh that makes them not want to be near us and it ultimately as at its root is a feeling of i'm not good enough i'm not lovable and that goes back to you know early painful memories that goes back to unresolved early painful memories unhealed trauma unhealed hurts and the more that and you're right the healthier we are as individuals the better we are in our relationships there's a clear correlation between that Mm. and i think that maybe we need to begin the work that long journey back into ourselves and we go back to at the beginning what you said you know we expect too much from somebody else when it will never be enough because unless we resolve what is actually subconsciously doing this sabotage doing this um in a hatred sometimes of ourselves I don't think we can ever really love somebody truly and make anything work. Yeah, you're 100% right. Like, that's that's a perfect way to put it. Like, when we, you know, when our relationship with ourselves is one of I'm not enough, I'm unlovable, and that's what I struggled with. Mm. And that's why, you know, my parents' divorce impacted me. And, you know, what I struggled with it was it was that and i wasn't capable of having i could have had a relationship with different women but would it have been healthy would i have i don't know if i would have if i i'm sure i would have gotten married if i didn't deal with my issues but i don't think i would have been capable of really giving and loving and i would have been too needy and i sure as heck wouldn't have been vulnerable Mm -hmm. and uh and so you're right about that like those needs you know when we're when we have unresolved issues from our past, it can blind. We can become so needy because of those things that it blinds us to uh, the reality of what our relationship does need. We become so needy that we can push people away, that we're that we don't really see things clearly and accurately, and it uh, it's a, it's a tragedy, and that's where these things become generational too. Because Every generation blames the one before, you know? Yeah, yeah. We carry it into every, you know, if our parents failed in some way, then that has repercussions on us. Then that has repercussions on our children. And unless at some point we take responsibility for the healing of that and yeah. we say, you know, for all our ancestors, for all our descendants, we are actually going to heal this because unless we do, we will just carry it on and have a world full of broken and tragic people. Yeah, yeah. that's very true. Yeah, you, you begin to create generational trauma. Mm. And, you know, part of what people do, part of what happens is is we end up giving love in the way that we were loved. And if we, this is something I mentioned in my TEDx talk, is... And this is a true story. And it just so happened to happen right before I was leaving to go speak. I was getting, uh, went out with my son 
wanted to spend some time with him because I was going to be traveling without him. And I am, you know, placing an order to a waitress and I'm saying here, you know, here's what we'd like to order. And I'm sure this has happened, but it was the first time I noticed that my son was repeating everything I was saying. Mm, and he was mm, saying it the mm, way I was saying mm, it. Mm. And it, to be honest with you, it scared me because mm. I'm like, holy crap, he's really watching. And saying it how I was saying it, repeating everything I was saying. And, you know, I was I was kind to the waitress, so he was kind in how he said it. And, I, you know, it's something you know, but it's not. But it really sent a chill down my spine where it's like, you know, who he's becoming is all within the context of who I am as his dad. <laughs> yeah. And... Mm. You know, and so he's going to give what I give and he's going to model himself after what I do. And and so if we model a lack of commitment, if we model, you know, if we model things out of our unhealthiness, we unfortunately, our children are learning that's what's normal. And we often equate what's normal. We assume what's normal is what's healthy. And so you know, we can take that with us and in, into our relationships and we and if it we don't really question it and we don't ever say, is this healthy? Is this normal? How I'm acting, how I'm operating. And we, uh, we've lost that sense of responsibility that who we are as parents, you know, we, we are our neighbor's keeper in the sense of who I am and how I act. People see that and that has repercussions throughout our, uh, our social circles. Yeah. I I think we need to take responsibility also in this time now that what it's showing us, we have so many conflicting things being told to us outside there by various people, by various governments, by the world, by experts. Yeah. This is the time that we need to take the responsibility in our hands for our life for our family, for our partners, you know, as a whole, it's time for us to grow. And it's not a time anymore for us to be spoon fed in a way. But that illusion has shattered. I think this time now, these past few months with this pandemic, everything has shattered and we've gone back to basics. And that's where we need to start. We need to start where we got lost. And, you know, and try to find something. Now, I know, Brad, that you originally studied religious studies. Is that Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And then that did that then make you um, go into the counselling and the therapy work that you do? Was that something? Good question. Yeah, that's a good question. Not really, to be honest with you. Mm. Um, I... uh, you know, it's interesting because you grew up in a broken home. You kind of want to do the opposite of what your parents did. And so for me as a teenager, uh, you know, finding God, that greatly shaped my life. But there's still, uh, but there was still, you know, even though you have uh, you know, faith, uh, it doesn't automatically, you know, it doesn't, which is interesting, just because you have faith uh, or believe certain things or believe, you know, a certain maybe moral code or whatever, it doesn't, or because you adopt a philosophy, it doesn't automatically mean, it doesn't always translate into psychological health. And so I had, uh, I still hold 
those things true that I found as a teenager, but I don't, it doesn't translate to psychological health. And so, which is really interesting because you think, you know, forgiveness, forgiveness is great. Forgiveness is powerful. Choosing to love somebody in spite of how they treat you. Uh, those are all powerful things, but it doesn't automatically assume, it doesn't automatically guarantee you're going to be psychologically healthy. And what I was finding out as I began to date in my early 20s was, I, you know, there's still some room I need to grow in. And I dated a girl uh, for about a year and a half, and she was a great girl, great person, nothing wrong with a relationship, but it was my first girlfriend. And I... Uh, thought to myself, uh, you know, and the, you know there may be worse some issues, but nothing like horrible. But it was, um, she was wanting to get married. It was funny. My dad would call me every day. This is back, you know, when call waiting, you just hit the button on the on the landline and you'd switch over. She would be calling me at the same time. My dad would call me asking if I've been looking for an engagement ring. My dad would call me and say, hey, I hope you haven't bought an engagement ring yet. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was kind of humorous <laughs> in that way. But it, I decided that, you know, I need to not pursue this relationship anymore with her. And it broke my heart because it was so good. She was my best friend at the time, somebody I genuinely cared for. But it, I didn't um, feel like we were ultimately meant to be married to each other. And, uh, and that, that pain from that and never wanting to hurt anybody again like that is a big catalyst mm -hmm. to what got me eventually to, uh, study relationships and definitely the pain from my parents' divorce that hugely impacted, impacted me, but the struggles I had later also impacted me and specifically that relationship because it was, uh, and that's kind of what we talked about earlier, like, you know, our failure and our mm -hmm. suffering can reveal what our purpose is but it brought and you to where you are today this is the point yeah is, is that you yeah, have absolutely. you had to go through that and that's why now you're able to help others now i really am happy that you came brad because it's fascinating i could talk hours with you about this because it's really really a fascinating subject but now drawing to a close yeah. one piece of advice that you would give to people about relationships before we end? Yeah, that's a great question. The Here's what I would focus on. When we're talking about commitment, commitment's extremely important because it provides a sense of predictability. People need predictability in their lives to be healthy. And that's you know something we've emphasized. But another thing that's extremely important is people need to feel like their caregivers are available, sensitive, and supportive. Research shows that those behaviors of availability, sensitivity, supportiveness, strengthen a bond and cause feelings of love to grow between a, between a couple. And what weakens love is experiences of disapproval, criticism, and rejection. Mm -hmm. and, and they're the opposite of each other. So Availability is the opposite of rejection. Sensitivity is the opposite of criticism. And supportiveness is the opposite of disapproval. And so if we consciously choose to be available, sensitive, supportive for our, our loved ones, our mm -hmm. children, our romantic partner, 
you know, we're going to have a love that continues to grow and last. Beautiful. And, but, but if we focus on disapproval, which is interesting because mm. it's, you know, it's okay to have, you know, differences of opinion, but when we communicate disapproval, it really, really weakens love. And criticism is another thing. It's okay to have criticism at work, uh, but we it really is a destroyer of romantic love. An acceptance and then, an acceptance for both yeah. for both people. Thank you yeah. so much, Brad. Yeah. Thank, you. Thank you. And now, where can people get um, in contact with you? Great question. The best place to go is healingbrokentrust.com. We talk about how to heal broken trust, infidelity, other forms of broken trust. Mm-hmm. On that website, we have a podcast called Healing Broken Trust as well. Okay. Uh, we've helped people from all over. Uh, that's probably the best place. Uh, we also have a website uh, with my wife and I. It's called bradandmorgan.com, mm-hmm. bradandmorgan.com. And then there's Healing Broken Trust and if, as well. Okay, and if they want to have a look at your TEDx, uh, talk that is um where is that on youtube yeah on youtube and mm-hmm. you can type in my name brad robinson tedx and it'll be the first video that pops up okay. or you can you can type in what makes love last i TEDx. love that i love that and there is still love isn't there brad in the world we can yes, we can yeah, hope is. for that and we can yeah. you know pray for that and I still believe in love and do you, do you still believe in love? Oh, absolutely! Yeah, more than ever. It's you know all the problems that we have in our world are really the result of a lack of love. Yes. Whether it's you know mm. it you know it's at its basic core all the issues that we're struggling with in the, our cultures uh, in the world today it's really at, at the root of it, it's a lack of love. Yeah. So we need more love and in everything that we do. And if we begin to love ourselves, we can be, you know, be really uh, the lighthouse that you talk about and we can help each other and flourish in the beauty of life again. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Brad. Thank you. And um, I wish you all the very best. And Anybody can contact you. Um, you're open to yeah. people um, sending you an email. Oh, yeah. Any okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Wherever they are in the world. Yep. Yeah. All right, then. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. It's been fascinating and wonderful. And I hope to speak to you soon sometime. Thank you, Amy. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Well... Love, that mysterious subject that um, is the thread of all creation, I think, and something that we are all striving for. And yet it is actually in our core who we are. Brad Robinson, very, very interesting, very interesting um, talk and subject. Thank you so much, everybody, for everything. And... um, Thank you for listening and take care of yourselves. Lots of love and see you again very soon. Thank you for listening to Secrets for an Inspirational Life, brought to you by your host, Mimi Novik. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast and see you in the next episode. For more information about Mimi Novik, 
and her books, music and inspirational work, take a look at her website www.miminovic.co.uk It is sometimes not explainable, even to us, the yearnings that we feel that come over us like waves, stirring us, moving us, calling us to go somewhere, to do something. Yet, we can't always understand the message. Maybe, it is because we are afraid that we prevent the heart from speaking. But it speaks to us whether we listen or not. It whispers, it shouts, it trembles, it laments. But always it's there trying to remind us of where it's trying to take us. Those flutters you feel, listen to them. 